You just never know when opportunity is going to present itself. Most of us do not think that that would include the classroom. That your life could change based on how you conduct yourself in school. I can tell you in my class, professional acting training program. I can tell you in three classes, the students that are serious, that are going to end up working hard, and the ones that are lazy, that I'm going to have to push, that want to argue, that are defensive, that really don't want to be taught in some way. Today we're going to talk to Graham Rowland. Graham is a professional screenwriter, television writer. He is the co-creator of the hit Amazon series Jack Ryan. He's the creator of the hit AMC show currently running, Dark Winds. He's been in the writer's room of Prison Break, Fringe, Lost. He wrote the feature film Mile 22. Now his life changed when he walked into an undergraduate writing class at Cal State Fullerton. It happened to be taught by Robert Engels. The guy loved his work so much. He opened the entire professional world to him. That is opportunity. We're going to talk about that today, my friends. So put the phone back in your pocket. Creating behavior starts now. fellow daydreamers luck I don't know it's a fickle thing and you know there's this saying that preparation and opportunity you know put those two together and you can get lucky I think that's very true and today we're going to talk to Graham Roland who I don't know got lucky I mean how else can you say it but he created it for himself Walking into a classroom, I don't think necessarily everybody appreciates that opportunity. You just don't know, you know, you walk into a class with 16 people, where those classmates are going to be in five years. I don't think you sit down on that first day, first week, and say to yourself, hmm, these people could be in my life for a long time. I could collaborate with these guys. I've got students. You know, I have a student graduated, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. She's one of the biggest agents at UTA right now. I have students that have become producers, directors, writers, playwrights, and they reach out to me for names, recommendations. They reach out to their classmates, the people they were in school with, and they collaborate with each other. Doors get opened all the time. I have students five years after they've gotten out of school. Charlie, can I have a letter of recommendation for grad school? Charlie, I'm just, I want to go to a school for psychology. Can you write me a letter of recommendation? I'll have casting directors, directors, playwrights reach out to me. Charlie, I have this audition. I have this film. I have this staged reading. I need this kind of actor. I'm looking for this type. Do you have any recommendations? I'm certainly not going to be recommending the students that may be talented, but were a pain in the ass to teach, were lazy, had a little bit of an attitude, maybe unreliable, maybe had some arrogance to them, rubbed people the wrong way. I don't care how talented you were. 
certainly not going to put my professional reputation on the line by recommending you. It's these little things. So, you know, Graham, he enters a writing class at Cal State Fullerton. It happened to be taught by a very serious professional writer, Robert Engels. The guy loved his homework assignment, has him stay after class, talks to him, gives him a different writing assignment, and the course of his life changes, and we're going to talk about that today. On a previous episode, I think one or two episodes ago, I talked about the importance of artistic heroes. It comes up in this conversation with Graham. And what I found interesting, what I learned, it's not just having artistic heroes, which I think is important, right? You need mentors that are going to inspire you, but you have to mimic and steal from them. Graham is going to talk about the influence Stephen King had on him as a child and how just trying to write like him started to teach him about storytelling. And it was fascinating. And I look forward to sharing this with you. A very interesting guy. We're going to talk about growing up in Oklahoma and San Francisco, being part of the Chickasaw tribal nation, and just what he's learned being a professional writer at the highest level. Okay, at the top of the conversation, though, we're talking about his military career. He's a Marine. He enlisted and ended up going to Iraq served a tour of duty. We're going to talk about how all of that influenced his life, his writing. And at the top here, I asked him, you know, why the fuck did you want to be a Marine? So I'll just say right now, thank you for your service, Graham. Appreciate that. And this is how he responded. This is Graham Rowland. You know, that's an interesting question. So it was September, October of 2000, when I walked into the recruiter's office and I kind of, you know, had gotten out of high school. My parents had gotten a divorce, you know, almost immediately after I graduated. And there was real kind of financial stress on my mom. And I didn't want, I knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't want to burden her with another expense. So I looked at, um, I had a couple of friends that I went to high school with that had joined and gotten the GI Bill. And I said, well, if I want to go to college, that seems like a good practical thing to do. And also I was a writer. I knew I wanted to write. I didn't know it would take me into television writing or anything like that yet, but I knew I wanted to write for a long time. And I felt like, hey, this will give me some life experience. It'll give me something that (laughs) other people don't have to write about. Now, that said, I was a child of the 90s and, you know, wars lasted two or three days. And I just never, I just didn't think there would be another protracted war. I just thought we were past that period. I thought, you know, we bombed people and sent some ground troops in and then things, you know, resolved. So did not anticipate at all uh, what happened. You know, I guess it was 10, 11 months later with 9-11 and then ultimately being deployed to Iraq, having friends that also went to Afghanistan. So all of those things I did not foresee, but I definitely, you know, my two motivations were get money for school and get something to write about. I did achieve both of those, um, but it just came with a bunch of other stuff I didn't anticipate. Why the Marines? Because Marines are no fucking joke. Because I had had two buddies, both of whom were fairly unimpressive individuals in high school, you know, stoner kids, 
And when they came back, the change was so dramatic. Um, not only physically, they were just almost like different people. And I was really impressed by that and by them um, and how much it had done for them. And so I felt like, well, you know, it got them straightened out. It could probably do the same for me. Why did you feel you needed to be straightened out? <laughs> you know, I think I never liked school. I didn't really apply myself. Had a lot of stuff going on at home and things like that, you know, that I could blame and say, oh, those are, the, you know, that was the reason. But I didn't apply myself and really prepare for going to college because I was sort of just living day by day. And I was also not getting into big trouble, not trouble with the law or anything, but, you know, I was cutting class and getting stoned and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, so you're Chickasaw. You're a Chickasaw. Yes. Yes. The Chickasaw Nation. What mm -hmm. was it like? You broke in home. You're spending half your time in liberal <laughs> San Francisco Bay Area, right? And then spending mm -hmm. part of your year in Oklahoma. Talk about it was, I mean, the two different worlds, right? I mean, two different worlds. I had a couple of instances in my life like that early on where I felt like I was trespassing in these two very different worlds. And that was the first one where when I was eight, my mom and I and my stepfather moved to the Bay Area and from Oklahoma. I would spend the school that year there and then in the summers I would go home with my biological father and spend the summer with him in Oklahoma. And obviously you have the all the the culture differences, you know, very much in the Bible belt, um, all of those kinds of things. But looking back on it now, which one of the things that I didn't really think about at the time, but it kind of crept up later um, in my in my artistic life. I was connected to the Native community in Oklahoma by virtue of my relatives. You know, the Native side of my family was all there. And not to say that, you know, we didn't live on a reservation, we didn't, none of that. But I was still connected to the culture and to my heritage via my relatives. When I was taken out of that and moved to California, there was no Native community at all where I was. And so oftentimes the other kids at school, you know, they would either think I was Hispanic or white or Italian. It just never would cross their mind. And so I kind of disconnected from that when I was living in California because it just was, wasn't a part of my life anymore. And then when I would go home in the summers, I would kind of be reminded of it. But I also, you know, as happens when you move great distances away, you start to lose contact with certain relative extended family and things like that. When I did go back, then I felt outside of it. And so I kind of felt outside of both worlds and not really putting any of that together on a conscious level. But when I, when I ended up doing Dark Winds, I wrote a storyline about one of the lead characters, the younger police officer, Jim Chi. And just was looking for a good storyline of like what would be interesting, would be interesting way to bring this guy into the, into the show. And I thought, well, what if he's, he grew up on the reservation, Navajo reservation, but he's been gone since he was a kid. And now he's coming back as a man in his mid twenties, who's now an FBI agent and he's not disclosing that to anybody, but more importantly, he feels completely disconnected from that part of his heritage and that part of his life because he's been living this whole other life and he feels like a trespasser. And I just wrote that thinking it was a good story. You know, it had played, it had a good arc for that character to go. But then I was sitting 
with the actor, you know, after we'd already filmed everything, Kyle Gordon, great actor who plays Jim Chi, we were talking for the first time, you know, kind of about both of our backgrounds. And he had a similar background where he was kind of part of the community and then he moved away for a while. And then so he, he sort of had one foot in, one foot out. And when he was talking about his background, it started to make me realize like, oh, well, that's not too dissimilar from my own story. And maybe subconsciously, that's how this all came about. You know, maybe I was trying to work something artistically out through that character. Well, you said you always knew you wanted to write. And, you know, I think anybody that's drawn to an, a creative life has some sort of, you know, childhood passion or dream for, for that particular art form. What, why writing? What was it? What was it about that art form that? appealed to you it started with reading mm. i it was w funny because i hated school but i loved to read and so even the books that they would assign you in school i would i would that would be my favorite part of school would be getting you know the reading assignments and i would always um, that's, that's the shit everybody puts off i remember you know it'd be like july and i've got five books to read and i'm like god damn this is and I used to do it too. I used to do it too. And there was one, I think it was like a spring break or something where, you know, you have the week off and I was grounded because I had done something. And so I couldn't watch TV. And so I thought, to, I remember distinctly thinking like, well, I have this book that we're supposed to read like a certain amount of chapters of when, by the time we come back, what if I just finish this book over the break? Cause I don't have anything else to do. Then I won't have any, like I could just do all this work and I'll skate for the next couple of weeks. And then I read the book and it, the book was where the red fern grows. I think I was in third grade or fourth grade or something like that. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, that was kind of the discovery of like, Oh, I really like reading. Like I was enjoying that as much as I was enjoying watching television and watching a movie. And then I started to pick up books uh, around the house that my mom had read probably too early for some of them because she was a big Stephen King fan. But I started reading Stephen King like at nine or 10. That led to, you know, Peter Straub and all these different horror. That was kind of my, my thing at first was horror, the horror genre. And then, you know, as you get a little bit older, you know, then you start reading, you know, Hemingway and you're still reading all these, the stuff that you have to read in school. I started reading Brett Easton Ellis when I was like in eighth grade or high school. And that was a whole other eye-opening thing. And it just, that was really where it started was I loved to read and I loved what those books and these, the way these writers wrote, what they inspired in me and what they did to me. And so it started with trying to mimic them and started really started trying to mimic Stephen King. Um, I mean, that's what, that's what artists do. I mean, I tell my students, I mean, all artists steal. They try to, they, they take from what inspires them and try to make it your own. You know, yeah. You, you need a launching point. You need some sort of form of inspiration, I think, to, to just be driven to start to do something. So Stephen King was it for you. Were you trying to just kind of his style and the way he would tell a story and, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I have, I still have one of the first stories I ever wrote, and it was so old. I, I wrote it by hand. We didn't even have a computer in the house, and I dedicated it to him. And you can see, like, it's very bad. Obviously, I was like eleven, but um, you can see me trying to imitate his kind of writing style. But more than that, it was the imagination. He kind of unlocked my imagination, and he, 
I, maybe I was an anxious kid already. All the little mundane things of the world that he used to scare you in his books, like a dog or a broken marriage or a family that goes to Colorado to caretake a hotel for the winter. Like these things that see on their surface seem mundane and then spin wildly out of control. I started to notice those things in my own life. And then that was the beginning of inventing stories. Well, you know, what if that door was a mouth or what if that car uh, had a mind of its own, which again was one of his stories. So that was really the beginning for me. Was he well, kind of, th- that, those stories unlock my imagination. Yeah. Well, you use, I think, the two most important words for any artist are what if. It's the key yep. to your imagination. And once you start with those two words, I mean, anything's possible. Yeah. You know? And yep. did you journal as a kid or did you diary? I did when I got into eighth grade high school years, kind of more my more angsty years. But really, it just started with writing fiction, just short fiction. That was the first thing that I did was just write really kind of bad short stories. And then when I became a teenager and I started to get more angsty and I started journaling, and I still have a lot of those journals, actually, still was doing short stories. And somewhere around high school, I started to realize I also had a dual love of of movies. And that was Mm -hmm. the early 90s. And so I remember seeing um, Reservoir Dogs on cable and thinking like, wow, I've never seen anything. And I wasn't supposed to be watching that. Like I was watching it late in my bedroom when my parents weren't paying attention to what I was doing. And that sort of fueled for me looking for more movies. It was such a great time for independent film, obviously. I mean, so there was all these Miramax and you know that whole independent with Tarantino came out, and even just like Walking and Talking and those Catherine Keener films, Mm -hmm. you know, Anne Heche and Mm -hmm. Lee Shriver. All those guys were doing. Uh, David Lynch was a big. I was a huge Twin Peaks fan. The original Twin Peaks, the first one. Well, it's um, odd you say Twin Peaks because, you know, I tell my students, you, you need to come correct every single time you have an opportunity to do something because you just don't know who is going to be reading something, watching something, and you come back, you're at Cal State, you're in this writing class with, is it Robert Engels, right? Robert Engels, that's right, yeah. Who, who wrote Twin, Twin Peaks. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. like a real, like, full circle kind of I've had a couple of those moments where I was a big fan of something and then ended up connected with someone who was involved intimately in making the thing. And so I was a big Twin Peaks fan just at that time. I mean, I'm sure you remember too. I mean, even now, if you put that on TV now, it would be so weird. But at time on on ABC, I believe it was. Yeah. On ABC in nineteen ninety or ninety one, there was nothing even close to like that. And it hit a, a nerve with people. Not only was it different and avant-garde, but it had a mass audience. And that was really eye-opening, too, that you could do something that different and people would tune in and do it. Well, so you're in class with this guy. He gives you an assignment to write a, a spec for something, right? It was a, a, yeah, it was. So I had come back. So kind of my journey was I had joined the Marines. I had done about almost a year on active duty. If you go through boot camp, the school of infantry, then the school of artillery, I was constantly living this boy cried wolf kind of situation with the military of, you know, you guys are going to get activated. You're going to go to Iraq. 
And then we would like sign, you know, wills and we would like figure out where we're going to put all of our personal belongings when we went. And like, we would go all the way up to doing all that. We get all the shots. And then the last minute they'd say, Oh, you're not going. So I spent like two years going through that of like every six months or so we'd start hearing like, Oh, you're going, you're going. And then, Oh, you're not going. What was that like? Emotionally? It was tough looking back on it. It was really tough because it prevented me. I was, I took college much more serious than I'd ever taken any schooling before. And so I was doing well. And it was also, I was a film student. So I actually loved what I was doing. And then finally I got to a point where I was just like, I don't believe it anymore. And then sure enough, that's when it happened. So it was, it was uh, in my junior year, we finally got called up and took a year off of school, deployed to Iraq, did a standard deployment. At that time, uh, I think the com- uh, standard combat deployment was seven months. So we were there from September, beginning of September 2005 to a- beginning of April of or mid-April of 06, something like that. Before I left, I'd taken every single writing class you could take. Getting back to your question about Robert Engels, there was a professor there who was teaching class for the first time. He was an actual television writer. And so this was his first time teaching. And it was my first time taking class from a write- from somebody who actually had done and was doing what I wanted to do. And so I enrolled in his class. It was a class that had never been offered before called one hour TV drama. And it was kind of the heyday of the one hour TV drama with the Sopranos and Deadwood and, and mm-hmm. big love and, and, and all those great shows, great shows. six feet under and the semester assignment that we all had to do was write a spec of your favorite show. And my favorite show at that time and the show that I had actually discovered in Iraq, I had some downtime and my mom had sent me a care package. And then the care package was a, was a box set of like the first two seasons of The Sopranos. In my downtime, when we weren't, you know, doing missions and things like that, I, I kind of went through that, those first two seasons and fell in love with the show. And so when I came back, I said, I'm going to do Inspect The Sopranos. We turned in our first like 10 or 15 pages. I think it was 15 pages. After we turned him in, he gave his normal lecture class. And then at the end of the class, he said, who's Graham? Who's Graham Roland? And I said, oh, that's me. And he said, will you stay behind for a second? And I said, all right. So we get out and, and he's like, well, you know, walk with me to my, to my next class. And he said, you know, I, I liked your writing. I was looking back at, you know, like the little bio or whatever that you wrote, you know, for when you came into the class and I saw that you you just came back from Iraq. I'll make you a deal. I don't want you to write a spec of the Sopranos. I want you to write me an original pilot. It can be about anything you want. Just set it in Iraq and base it on your experience. And if you do that and you finish it, I don't care if it's good or bad, I'll give you an A. And I said, okay. And so I did that. And he gave me notes throughout the whole process. And ended up being like this weird, and I, I was also very into the show Lost at that time. Those were kind of the other two shows. And sort of so, ended up being like this very quasi-science fiction military thriller set in Iraq. When I was done with his help, you know, he's giving me all these notes. He managed to get it to a management company. And it just went in a pile of scripts on it, submissions and stuff like that. And, and a young manager named Michael Previtt there picked it up and... I was still finishing school. I had a few weeks left. I think when I first met Michael, uh, my last semester, I was getting ready to take finals. And, and he said, 
you know, can you drive out to LA and, and meet me for lunch? And I said, yep. We, I drove out there. We had lunch. He was like, I'll, you know, if you're interested in doing this and, and you want to move to LA, you know, you're graduating from, if you move to LA when you're done, that's your plan. I'll, I'll represent you. And I said, yep, absolutely. That's my plan. Without Robert Angles, not only giving me the idea to write a pilot based on something that I had experienced, which I think, as you know, all most good art comes from within, mm-hmm. comes from something you can, you're drawing from. And also more, almost as importantly, if not more importantly, a professional writer who had done something that was so seminal in my formation as a, as a writer and an artist and a TV fan, you know, with Twin Peaks telling me at that time in my early twenties, I think you could do this for a living made all the difference in the world because I had no, I had no friends in LA. I had no clue about how I was going to go about breaking into the business. So he really mentored you. He mentored me that final year that I was in school, even when the semester was over and I was fine tuning the script, I would drive out to his house. He was living in Silver Lake. I would drive out to his house and he would give me notes that ended up being the script that got me a manager it ended up being the script that got me my first agent it ended up being the script that got me my first job on a show called prison break. Oh yeah. Um, Wentworth Miller. Love that Wentworth show. Wentworth Miller. Yeah. That was, a, that was a fun show. The first couple of seasons, I feel like it kind of jumped the shark after a while, but those first couple of seasons were dope. It's, you know, it's interesting because in, if that show were to remake today, it would have been, it would have been great the whole way through because we made 88 or 90 episodes of that show, That's 90 hours. And today, in a, in a world where you make it eight episodes a season, you could have just done those first two seasons <laughs> over four, or that would have been four seasons. And you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. It was, that was really my film school, you know, as much as I, I kind of got a little knowledge in, in, in school about story and, you know, why things were good and why certain things weren't good. Really getting thrown into the fire because I came out to LA in August of 07 and I started uh, the writer's strike happened um, mm-hmm. a couple weeks after I moved out here. And then when the strike ended, I believe it was like February of 08, I walked onto the lot, the Fox lot to start my first day of work as a staff writer on prison break. So I had a very fortuitous, you know, um, move out to LA and then started working almost immediately. Yeah. I was working at a bookstore for about six months when the strike ended or during the strike, actually the, the showrunner of prison break had read my script and the one that I'd wrote for written for Bob angled. And he invited me to coffee in Hancock park because he wasn't running prison break because he was on strike. He was at home. He had nothing to do. So that's another instance of just my timing could not have been better because even though everyone was on strike, showrunners and agents and people who normally would not ever pick up a spec written by somebody who was in college, you know, less than a year ago, picked up my script and read it and, and not only read it, but took time out of his day to meet with me and have coffee with me and never offered me a job at the coffee, but, but mm. offered me advice about being a professional, being a professional writer. Yeah. And well, well what does it mean? What did you learn about? what it takes to be a professional. Cause it's one thing to say I'm a writer or I'm an actor or I want to act. It's another thing 
and then they'll say, okay, now I'm a professional. Like, what did you learn in that writer's room on that first show? You have to do it. You have to do it every day. You have every to work day. on your craft. It's a craft. It's not like, I'm, you know, oh, I get a bolt of lightning and a great idea. Well, I got to write that. No, you got to find it. You got to, you got to be reading. You got to have your intent up and you got to be sitting in the chair and writing when you don't feel like writing. And you got to be writing a lot of bad stuff to get to something that's decent. He approached it more like an artisan instead of like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I'm, you know, this mad genius who gets an idea and then goes off and writes it and comes back with an amazing, you know, story. And then when he brought me on, the first thing he told me, he actually did not let me in the writer's room on the first day. He convened the room. He let me meet everybody. So I went in and like met everybody. And he was like, I was the only new writer in in the four years that they'd had. Everybody, even the younger writers had been assistants before. So I was the only person who was just coming in cold that hadn't been there since the first season. So they're all friends. They've got history. They've got all of it. Super tight room. And one of the, still to this day, one of the most talented and, and best groups of writers I've ever had the privilege to be in a room with. So he, he let me meet everybody. And then he's like, okay, come with me. And he put me at a, I didn't have an office yet. They were cleaning out a storage <laughs> uh, room. It was going to be my office. Um, and he put me at a desk, like in the bullpen area where all the assistants were. And he dropped every single all three seasons of Prison Break to that point, 66 episodes or maybe more than that of scripts. He's like, read these. I know you watched the episodes, but read every single one of these. And I think I, for the first two days, all I did was read scripts. And I think at the end of the week on Thursday or Friday, he, he let me come into the writer's room. And what was the difference between watching all, you know, 60 some odd episodes and re- reading them? I got to see all the revisions because you know how the the revisions are color-coded in a script and so you get to see how everything changed over the course of the the production all the way up until some of the things that were in the script that didn't make it to the final edit for me the writing i was reading all the writers were in the next room and so i got to read how their styles were different and you know, some shows you work on, and I went on to work on other shows like this, where you have to really mimic the style of the showrunner. Right. Prison Break wasn't like that. You had to, you know, stay within the framework of the characters, and you know, you couldn't have them doing things that that they wouldn't do, or have storylines that didn't feel true to the show. Mm-hmm. But you were free to write your prose the way you wanted to write it, and they, and a lot of them had unique writing styles, and it was fun to see how certain people did certain things, whether it be a turn of phrase and dialogue or whether it be even action lines that you would never be privy to, but you could see how those, those lines really evoke the sense of the scene and what the writer wanted. And so I started looking at that and I started being like, Oh, that's really good. I'm going to, I'm going to take that and do that. When I write my way, if I get a, if I get a script, I'm going to do something like that from this person. And I'm going to do something like that from that person. And so everybody had something that, I really enjoyed. So by dropping all those scripts in front of me and starting me off by reading those scripts before he let me in the room, what he was really signaling to me was, yes, you're getting paid. Yes, you're a professional writer now, but you're also still a student. I don't expect you to be as good of a writer as a co-EP. You're here to learn how to make a television show as much as you are to help us do our jobs. 
it freed me up tremendously. It took all the pressure off of like, oh my God, because you step into the writer's room and I think the first instinct a lot of young writers have is to keep score of how often they're talking and, oh my God, this person's had three pitches today. I haven't haven't said anything. And so take this opportunity to learn as much as you can. Treat it almost like a second film school. And I did. And the great thing about that show was it's still to this day the only show that um, that season we shot in Los Angeles. You, we, we worked on the Fox lot. So I'd drive on to the Fox lot. I'd walk to the writer's office. A hundred feet from the writer's office were the stages. Be- beneath the writer's office office was, was the production office. And then beneath that was post. And so everything, every aspect of the TV show and how it's made was all within half of an acre. I got to see every single part of the process. The other great thing was that, and I never had this in any other show since, as a room, every single writer would watch the first cut that would come in of a show, whether you wrote it or not. And we did 24 episodes that season. I watched 24 director's cuts. I got to watch all of them give notes and talk about why that scene wasn't working or what needed to be done to fix that scene. So when I went to my next job, and I didn't get to watch every director's cut, but the the showrunners of that show, uh, Lost, Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof, both of those shows, not only was I the, the new guy, the new writer, was coming into a room of, and not only a room, but extending out into the production in Hawaii, but also the, the assistants, like everybody had been there. I think the PA on both jobs, the, the PA who got coffee and I were the only two new people coming into that season. So everybody knew each other. Um, what was it like coming on their show that you watched and, and loved? Just as a fan. Intimidating. At first, extremely exciting, but then also intimidating because as a fan, you felt both giddy to be peeking behind the curtain to see how it was done trying not to be a fan in the writer's room when you're sitting next to these people and they're talking about, you know, you know, Damon and, and, and Carlton and the writers are talking about what's going to happen with Kate and Sawyer and Jack, this episode, you know, the, for your first instinct as a fan is like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. That and the Sopranos were my two favorite shows at the time. And I think the Sopranos had ended at that time. So that was my favorite show. It was on the air. I watched every episode every week. I had to get over that. I had to get over being a fanboy. I had to get over and just be like, I'm here to do a job. Well, how did, but prison, both, how did prison break set you up for what? Now you got through lost. It set me up very well. It set me up well because the environment at prison break took a, an interest in, in mentorship. When I got to lost also the doing that much post also I had been on set you know, which as a staff writer now is unheard of. Back then, it wasn't unheard of, but it also wasn't common. And so I'd had a lot because they'd exposed me to all aspects of it. I felt more equipped than I think many staff writers would have. Um, That said, both shows, but in particular Lost, was an extremely tight ship. They were moving at light speed. They didn't need to talk in full sentences to communicate or understand what the other person was saying. And so part of the challenge of that show, the dual challenge was, okay, I'm not a fan anymore. I'm here to do a job. And the second part of it was, 
everything in the writer's room felt like it was moving so fast and I, and I had to catch up and that took some adjustment because on that show you would write as, as a younger writer, I would write a lot of sides. I would write a lot of first drafts of scenes for other writers of their episodes and things like that. Um, which was common when you're, when you're doing that many episodes and the time crutches that fast, like that was commonplace, like at that time and in, in broadcast, when I got to my own episode, I felt like, Oh, I can do this because I've already done it. And I've already proven myself to my bosses that I can write. So it, it took a bit of pressure off me. You're very lucky to, uh, if you're an artist that's been mentored, you know, cause it's it makes thing, all the difference. Yeah. I mean, you can't really seek them out. They, they kind of find you. I mean, you have to stand out above everybody else that they're, teaching or working with and they have to go you know what there's something about you i'm willing to invest some time in you know it's the same yeah. for me too you know that's why i tell my students like you know you show up here you're lazy or you don't know your lines or you're half-assed or you're defensive with criticism or you want to argue or you have an attitude like you just don't know who is in that class with you and what they're going to be doing in five years or the opportunity that might come to you. You know I mean? Like you're, you can only control so many things, the quality of your work and your reputation. I'm very fortunate to have had the career that I've had. And I absolutely 100% would not be where I'm at. Had early on, people had not taken an interest in me and said, Hey, come here, let me show you how to do this. And I had that on my first three jobs. Well, so what's the difference between those early jobs getting into a room and then saying, hey, listen, we want you to take Tom Clancy's greatest character and um, create something. You know what I mean? Like it's a whole nother beast and a process. And Yeah. I mean, at that time, you know, I'd had a steady sort of climb up the up the writing ranks, if you will. You know, I'd skipped a couple levels, but for the most part, I went, you know, check the box and move on. So I, at that time I had probably been a part of making almost a hundred hours of television at that point, if not more. I w- I thought I was ready from a writing perspective. I really did. Mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, the other uh, stuff that I wasn't ready for, I hadn't really done a great deal of hiring, especially mm-hmm. not department heads and things like that. Casting was also something that I had, Certainly weighed in on, um, but so not. You were sitting in auditions. You were sitting in on sitting in auditions sessions. now, and I I done a little bit of that, but not much. And then you know, there's all the stuff that you know the the non sexy things, as I call it, like the you know handling the budget and like things like that. And also, you know, the interesting thing about being a showrunner, creating your own show, is it's sort of like the epitome of your writing career because now you mm-hmm. kind of have the final. Not the final say, but you have creative control. I mean, you're the top, um, you're the top dog creatively, right? If you're the show, you're the top dog creatively, and certainly you are collaborating with all of your partners at the studio, the network, your other writers, your other producers, your cast. So it's certainly a collaboration. But it's sort of, on one respect, it's like I made it, you know, mm-hmm. and now you have more writing to do than you've ever had to do in your life. And you have less time to write than you've ever had to write in your entire career because the majority of the job, as I found out, is not writing. It's actually, especially when you when you get into production, it's everything else. It's you know managing the production. It's it's dealing with your collaborators and your fellow people, and that's the stuff that I feel like 
I had to learn a lot. Yeah, I was certainly better writer than I was a quote unquote showrunner that first year. What makes a good showrunner? What makes a good showrunner? I mean, it's probably you probably get a lot of different answers, but I think a good showrunner is yes, you have to be creatively confident and competent. You have to be confident enough to be open and collaborative. Um, it doesn't seem like you know when you say that confident enough to be open. You know, a lot of people that confidence leads to arrogance and which is not a good combination, but I, I feel like the people that I've worked with almost invariably, and whether this be a writer or an actor or a set designer or whatever, whatever your job is, the people that are usually the best at their craft are oftentimes the most collaborative because they're confident in their own ability. They're not threatened by you. They're not threatened by you coming in and saying, you know, I don't know about that. Like, They'll listen. And I feel like that's something that comes with experience and time. But a good showrunner is also a good listener and a good mm-hmm. collaborator. I look at where we're at now with Dark Winds in, this, in the season we just finished. And in a lot of ways, I'm not running that show, by the way. It's a, uh, John Worth is running that show. I created it. And I'm still learning things from other showrunners like John. A couple people have a huge influence over the culture of a show. And one of them is the showrunner and the other one is the number one on the call sheet. And if those two, if that relationship is born of respect, mutual respect and collaboration, it sets you up on a really good trajectory to have a good, not only a good show, but a good experience making that show. Totally. I mean, the number one, it, it, it all goes downhill from number one in the call sheet, right? In terms of just the, the overall, just the vibe of a set, the feel of a set, the way people are going to treat each other yep. and talk to each other. Well, so, all right, Dark Winds. I mean, listen, that Reservation Dogs came out. Incredible show. Great, yep. uh, just, um, you know, Native American life. And uh, just seeing them as, as just real people. So I, Dark Winds is doing the same thing. What are you most proud of about what you're putting, what you put out there? With You know, at the time that we started developing it, um, there was nothing on. The Reservation Dogs hadn't come on yet. So mm-hmm. when Reservation Dogs came on before we did, and it it really did us, and, and Rutherford Falls or a couple of other things, mm-hmm. it really did us a great service because before we ever came out, it proved that there was an audience for shows set in this world and this yes. community. And two, they're two very different shows, very different shows. But it kind of dispelled this idea that, oh, you have to have all these known actors. and it's, you know, so, it's, it's so untrue. I mean, people just want good storytelling, good acting, yeah. good writing. They'll watch it. They'll watch it. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we owe, we owe a tremendous amount, uh, to them for kind of paving the way a little bit for us. And our lead is also, you know, in their show. The thing I'm most proud of this show is probably the thing that is, is closest to my heart in terms of anything I've ever done. The thing that, um, not to everything I've done, I, I care a tremendous amount about, but this one really, it was a chance to bring a community culture to the screen in a way that ha- hadn't been depicted, you know, meaning the Navajo community, the Navajo reservation 
hadn't been depicted on television before. And the reason I got involved with the project is it was an opportunity to, to bring an audience into that world and into that community through a native protagonist. Mm-hmm. We've also, in the course of making it, these two seasons, we've been very lucky and blessed to work with some very talented native artists across the board, whether that be in the writer's room, you know, in the cast, obviously phenomenal cast, but also behind the scenes as well. That's been tremendously gratifying seeing them rise to the occasion and step mm-hmm. up and do fine work. Great show. It's very compelling. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. And it also has a little bit of that, um, other world kind of supernatural uh kind of through line which is you know you've done a lot it's got a little taste of it here and there it's it unsettles you it jolts you it scares you it's it's great i'm curious what what's the most difficult thing about doing a period piece setting something in 1971 i'll tell you, you guys kill the cars your cars are unbelievable <laughs> uh thank you one of the things that we have going for us is we have these tremendous novels written by a gentleman named Tony Hilleman. And the two novels we've used so far in the first two seasons were written in the 1970s. First and foremost, we have his writing to turn to and, and look at and see. When I wrote the pilot, a, a great consultant who had been a Navajo police officer in the 70s. And so I got to say, well, what kind of car did you drive? And what kind of gun did you carry? And what do the uniforms look like? I like the challenge of trying to get it as accurate as possible. I also like the challenge of this year. We've kind of, we've kind of played around a little bit more in the seventies, not only with the music, but um, if you've caught any of this season, you know, you see that there's, I think it's Apollo 15, the moon, the moon landing where they throw the car on the moon and you see the community kind of reacting to that and, and, and what that means uh, to the people here taking some of those current events back then and sort of trying to infuse them into the storyline that you're telling. We don't do that a lot, but that was an example of it. It really, you know, I have to give most of the credit, honestly, to the detail that the crew puts into it. You know, obviously the writers do their part, but the production designer and the costumes, the hair and makeup and all that stuff Mm -hmm. in particular, you know, it's not like we're trying to recreate New York and make it New York in 1971. So it's a lot easier easier to do when you're trying to do it in that area because not a lot has changed. And and, and in some ways, sadly, not a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, In some ways you you go on the reservation still and there's most, a lot of homes still do not have electricity. It's easier than doing it, you know, trying to do it, you know, in a city. Yeah. I, I can't believe it's already been an hour. So I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this up here. But, I, you know, you have been on the other side of the table, and I do teach actors. I'm curious, given the many auditions you've seen, is there anything you would say don't ever do or make sure you do do? Like what stands out to you in terms of just like actors walking into a room and auditioning? Most auditions that you watch are, are self-tapes, unfortunately. But even when we were doing in-person auditions, I've never been in like a cringe-worthy audition where somebody just came in and was just so, you know, off the wall or wrong for the part. Everybody that I've ever been in an audition room with has come in and been professional. Talking about being on the other side of the the table and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Uh, during the pandemic, my wife Carly wrote and directed a short film. And she asked me if I wanted to play a part in the film. 
And I had done like a little like acting and stuff in, in, in college, you know, for other film students, you know, we would act in each other's films, but just messing around. And this was a case where, because she's an actor, everybody else in the film was a professional actor. And it really gave me a, a huge, not that I didn't appreciate actors before, but a huge amount of appreciation because it, I had to go through the process now. I had to do the rehearsals. I had to learn the lines. I had to show up on set and go to hair and makeup. And I had to come into a scene with four other professional actors and not screw it up and hit my mark and do all and remember my lines and do all those things. And by far, you know, I was the worst part of the film, <laughs> I'm sure. But not that I didn't look at it as a, as a craft before, but like all of the things that actors have to hold in their heads when they go to do an audition yeah. and then still be able to emotionally do something true and real yeah. while remembering all the practical things yeah. and listen, getting direction from the director of like, Oh, Hey, now try one like that. Yeah. It's hard. Whole, whole new respect. And after listen, doing that. I got, I got lots of love for Carly. You did marry a Maggie Flanagan studio alum. So, you know, I know yeah. um, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. All yeah, right. She definitely does. All right. So I'm going to, the last question and we'll wrap it up. I yep. we'll close that out on this. How would you describe the importance of artistry if you want to live a creative life. How you begin is is mimicking your your idols. But at a certain point, you've got to let that go. And I see a lot of young writers trying to write to what the successful movie was last summer or what the successful show is on TV, how their favorite writer writes. I think it's a fine line, but you have to be able to walk it of taking from your heroes and using them as inspiration and putting some of their tools in your toolbox. But you still, at the end of the day, have to find that thing in yourself about what you have to say about the world and how you feel about things and express it. Well, my fellow daydreamers, thank you for sticking around and keeping that phone in your pocket. Please, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Tell your friends about it. I got this really great podcast about art and acting. If you got a few minutes, go to iTunes. Write a review for the show. That would help me out a hell of a lot. You can go to creatingbehaviorpodcast.com. Go to the contact page. Hit that red button. I use SpeakPipe. You can leave me a message. Ask a question. Share some thoughts with me. I'll get back to you. You can also go to MaggieFlanaganStudio.com if you are interested in training with me at my New York City Conservatory. You can also follow me on Instagram at Creating Behavior at Maggie Flanagan Studio. Lawrence Trailer, thank you for the music, my man, my friends. Come on, stay resilient, playful out with yourself, and don't ever settle for your second best. My name is Charlie Sandlin. Peace.